Well, good morning. My name is Bill Barber. I'm a member of the teaching team here at Grace Ann Arbor and Grace Canton, also known as the Shadow of Ikea. Uh, and uh, I am so glad to be with you today and to share with you. How many of you were at the harvest party last night? All right, 19 of you. That's great. Good to see. I am bummed that I missed that. I was so excited. I, I was ready to appear as George Clooney. Uh, because I get that a lot, as you can see, you know, total strangers stopping me on the street and saying, has anyone ever told you you look like George Clooney? No, maybe Pitbull, but not, not George Clooney, that is, that's for sure. But uh, the reason I couldn't be here is because, and my voice is a little shot, because for the last two days, I have been the public address announcer at Spring Arbor University for four college basketball games. And so this morning, if I lose track of where I am and I just break into this, good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Grace Ann Arbor, you know, just pull the whistle out of your pocket, which I know you all carry, and give a technical foul to the preacher who has lost his mind. Will you do that? Well, this morning, we are talking about this word, blind-sided. If you're like me, you probably don't like that word, and and you really don't want to experience that word. Being blindsided usually makes you sick to your stomach. It leaves you weak in the knees. It causes us to, to fight back tears of hurt and anger. It backs us into the corner or under the covers. The reason that word is so painful is because most of the time, blindsided means that something has gone terribly wrong. It means that your best laid plans and dreams have been severely altered, maybe shattered into tiny pieces, and you never even saw it coming. Most of us have been blindsided at some point by something or someone. Maybe it was when your spouse filed for divorce or, or you found out that your significant other had cheated on you. Maybe it was the phone call telling you that someone who was very, very dear to you had passed away suddenly. Perhaps it was someone you trusted in your childhood or in your teen years who sexually abused you or raped you. Maybe it was a moment of, of reckless choices when you got a DUI or, or lost your virginity. Maybe it was when your boss walked into your office, told you the company is downsizing, reorg is going on, you no longer have a job, or, or when the bank called and said, there's a problem with your credit report, uh, we can't give you the loan. It, maybe it was when that panel of blood work revealed that you have cancer, or you went for a routine prenatal checkup and, and the doctor couldn't find a heartbeat. For Marty and me, uh, it was 30 years ago when a surgeon came out of the operating room and he said to me, your wife will make a full recovery, but there is a 0% chance that you will ever have children. Well, I'm thankful to tell you that one of our 0% chancers is leading worship at Grace Canton this morning, and he'll be here at 5 o'clock tonight, so if you want to see what a 0% chance looks like, he's about 6'5", 220, <laughs> Uh, then 21 years ago, our worlds were rocked again when our phone rang. That was back when it had a cord and hung on the wall. Do any of you remember that? Uh, okay, two of you remember that. 
And the doctor said, we're really concerned about your ultrasound. All of the markers point to trisomy 18, a severe chromosomal abnormality. And uh, we need you to go to U of M Hospital for an extensive ultrasound battery. If we confirm what we suspect, your baby will only live for a day or two after it's born. Well, I'm thankful to tell you that, that that baby boy is a college basketball player today. But again, we felt the hurt and the fear and the brokenness. You see, I've lived long enough. I have enough wrinkles. I have enough wavy, flowing gray hair. Well, another George Clooney desire, I guess to know that when you're blindsided, whether you realize it at that moment or not, you're on the brink of a defining moment in your life. Defining moments are those pivotal events where everything you profess to believe about God is distilled and compressed into a single episode of your life. You don't see them coming, they're unscripted, they're unavoidable. But they are the moments of truth when your faith is put to the ultimate test. For the past five weeks, we've been uh, looking in high definition at the lives of Old Testament characters, Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua. I think I got them all. We were, we were seeing their defining moments, and this morning we're going to relive a defining moment in the life of a young woman named Ruth. And so will you please open your Bibles to Ruth chapter 1 or your Bible app. If you're using the Bibles from the chair in front of you, it's page 222. How easy is that? 222. And meet me in Ruth chapter 1. And here is what the word of the Lord says to us. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Then verse 3 fills us in on this family. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. She was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. And after they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died. We only have to read the opening line of the book of Ruth to discover that this is one of the darkest eras in Israel's history. Moses and Joshua are dead and gone. The days of the judges was a 300-year period that was totally void of spiritual leadership, and it created this immense spiritual and moral vacuum. Autonomy was the rule of the day. Relativism ruled. If it felt good, it was good. If it felt right, it was right. Matter of fact, the final verse of the book of Judges says, in those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. And this family that Ruth would eventually marry into could not escape that spiritual vortex. Elimelech made the fateful decision to relocate his family to escape the severe famine in Bethlehem and he decided to go to the neighboring country of Moab. Now, you need to know this. The Moabites were historic enemies of the Israelites, going all the way back to the time of Moses. The, the women of Moab seduced the men of Israel and led them into idolatry. And so a move to Moab might save their lives, but it would certainly jeopardize their souls. And the family lives there 
for more than a decade, 10 tragic, devastating years. The dad dies. The two sons marry Moabite women, and then the two sons die prematurely. And that leaves us with three grieving widows, a mother with her two daughters-in-law. And so let's pick up the drama in verse 6. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. And then I'm going to summarize for you what happened in verses 11 through 15 in chapter 1. Naomi basically has an emotional meltdown. She stops en route from Moab to Bethlehem, and she says to her daughters-in-law, Look, my sons, your husbands are dead. I, I have nothing left to offer you. I have no more sons. I can't take care of you. And oh, by the way, I am ticked off at God. I'm mad, I'm bitter, I'm angry. He has left me empty. So I want you to go back to Moab and return to your people and to your false gods. What an amazing evangelism ploy, right? Go back to your idols. Well, two things come out of Naomi's tantrum. First, Naomi becomes a perfect Facebook meme for every bad mother-in-law joke that you can think of. I mean, just put a picture of Naomi there stomping her feet in the dust on the road between Moab and Bethlehem. Bad mother-in-law. Second, more importantly, our focus starts to shift to this young gal named Ruth. And we discover a very comforting truth at this point. Even when you get blindsided by life, the sovereign, all-seeing God still has his eye on you. When you get slammed down on your rear end, when you get, get the wind knocked out of you and you didn't even see it coming, do not surrender to the cynical, faithless assumption that God doesn't see you, that God doesn't notice your devastating pain and loss and tears, that God doesn't care about you and your divorce or your abuse story or, or your infertility or your miscarriage or your health crisis or your bankruptcy or your deep depression or your fear or your loneliness. Don't assume that that's not on his radar because it is. I know that because think about it. Here is a Moabite a young woman outside the covenant promises of God, at least in, in her early years, a presumed enemy of Yahweh. That's what she grew up as, an enemy of God. But God sees her plight, her blind-sided event, losing a husband prematurely, and he tenderly and graciously has mercy on her. So in the, the wake of being rocked by the premature death of her husband, in the middle of having to start over with absolutely nothing, in the face of her bitter mother-in-law saying, go back home to your people and to your idols, Ruth is confronted by her defining moment. It's a moment of truth that will change the trajectory of her entire life. It's going to affect every subsequent decision that she's going to have to make, and it will actually impact future generations. We read about it in verses 16 and 17. Ruth interrupts her mother-in-law's tantrum and says, don't urge me to leave you 
or to turn back from you. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Case closed. Argument over. Even a disillusioned, bitter Naomi cannot rebut her daughter-in-law's simple but powerful confession of faith. Your peeps, my peeps. Your God, my God. Embedded in those words is the only conviction, I think, that will sustain us, that will sustain you when you've been blindsided. God will be my God even when life hurts. Even when life sucks, even when, it, when my dreams have been thrown on the ground and stomped to a thousand pieces, God will be my God. And so we have two widows. They're blindsided by tragedy. They're left reeling. They're in desperate need of protection and provision. And they go back to Naomi's hometown. And they're among the poorest, most disadvantaged residents in all of Bethlehem. They need compassion and mercy, and they need it big time in epic proportions. And guess what? They're going to find it in the weirdest place, in a farmer's field. Chapter 2 opens with Ruth proposing a risky, dangerous plan to Naomi. She says, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi says, go ahead. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of her father-in-law, Elimelech. Have you ever come across a passage of scripture or you get your verse of the day emailed to you and you go, I love that. That's an awesome statement. It's an awesome phrase. Well, that's the way I feel about this little Hebrew phrase translated, as it turned out. Because in the original language, it literally says, and chance landed Ruth in the field of Boaz. And of course, we know because we're informed. We say, chance my eye, right? This isn't chance. Unknown to Ruth, unplanned by Ruth, orchestrated only by the sovereign sweet mercy of God, this young widow stumbles onto the field of a wealthy landowner. And more importantly, it's the field of a family relative, and his name is Boaz. And once again, Ruth finds herself totally blindsided for a second time. But this time, she's blindsided by God's grace. Boaz meets Ruth. He immediately lavishes her with the protection and provision she needs. He, he insists that she spend the rest of harvest season working in his field. He provides a huge meal for her with leftovers so she can take home to her mother-in-law. And he orders his men to protect her at all costs and even to make it easy for her to glean a massive personal harvest 
Now, I have to tell you, this is where it really gets good. The male harvesters in Ruth's day would work from sunrise to sunset, and they would gather all of these sheaves of barley, they would thresh them, and at night, the average male harvester, hardworking man, would take home one to one and a half pounds of barley. Ruth, at the end of her first day, has 30 pounds of barley. I mean, can you imagine Naomi's eyes when Ruth walks in and dumps 30 pounds on the kitchen floor? It'd be like when, like this Tuesday night, if you send your four-year-old out, four out trick-or-treating, you know, with one of those cute little pumpkin buckets that holds two candy bars and a bag of Skittles, you know, something like that. And she comes back home with 10 pillowcases full of candy and diabetes, right? <laughs> I mean, what an amazing... Thing. Oh, Ruth finds this grace too amazing. This, this response of Boaz is so overwhelming, she can't contain her, her sense of curiosity and awe. And so in chapter 2, verse 10, she asks him, with her face bowed down to the ground, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you would notice me? Because I'm a foreigner. Well, Boaz doesn't mention it here in chapter 2, but I have a pretty good idea of the real reason behind his generosity and his grace toward Ruth. And it's not just a theory, some cooked-up thing by George Clooney, okay? Uh, it's found in the shadows of Boaz's family of origin. I call it the Rahab connection. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, which is basically a biblical version of Ancestry.com, we, we find that one of Boaz's female ancestors is a woman named Rahab. Now, if you've read through the Old Testament or heard some of the Old Testament stories, you go, wait a minute, I, I, I know that name. You mean the Rahab who lived in the city of Jericho back in Joshua's day? You, you mean the, one, the woman who hid the spies that Moses sent to spy out the promised land? That, that Rahab? You, you mean the one who converted from paganism and became a worshiper of Yahweh, the true God? Wait a minute. You mean Rahab, the former prostitute? Yep, that Rahab. She's Boaz's great-great-grandma. I don't know how many greats there, but she's his female ancestor. And he was surely aware and humbled that in his own family history, his great-grandma was a Gentile, a foreigner, a presumed enemy of Yahweh who desperately needed grace. I mean, does that excite you that God's remarkable providence would actually dump a foreigner, a Gentile, into the field of a man whose family knew what it was like to be blindsided by grace? How good is God to do that for Ruth? How tender of him. And Boaz speaks grace to her in verse 12 of chapter 2. He says, may the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now I want you to think back to what Ruth said on the road between Moab and Bethlehem when Naomi was losing her mind. She said, your God will be my God. 
She could never have dreamed of God's faithfulness to take her tragic story of losing her husband at such a young age and repurpose that and make it something beautiful, something good. I would say being blindsided by grace is a pretty great thing, wouldn't you? Would you agree with that? Blindsided by grace? And if the story ended right here, it's a cool story. It's really, really good, but it it doesn't end here. There are two more chapters, so it's only going to take us about 25 or 30 more minutes to get through it. JK, (laughs) LOL, double winky face. It's not going to take long. Ruth races home to her mother-in-law, unloads 30 freaking pounds of barley on the kitchen floor. She dabs and says, booyah. (sighs) Dead scrolls. That's how I found out about that, I'm pretty sure. She tells Naomi about Boaz, and Naomi does a happy dance and loses her mind again, except this time in a really good way. Chapter 2, verse 20, she says, The Lord bless him. The Lord has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. That man is our close relative. He's one of our kinsmen redeemers. Now, i got to tell you, what happens next is a blur. It's the mother of all whirlwind romances. Naomi explains to Ruth, we have a special law in Israel, the law of the kinsman redeemer. It's a legal provision for a dead man's nearest relative, perhaps his brother, perhaps an uncle, a great uncle, will marry the childless widow and hopefully father a son in the dead man's name. And that way, the dead man's property and possessions will always remain in the family. And a man's family name will not be erased by a premature death. (sighs) Sounds gross to me, right? I mean, that sounds sketchy, right? It gives you the heebie-jeebies because you're thinking about your middle-aged uncle, Lenny, being the kinsman redeemer. I mean, bald, and not that there's anything wrong with that. Beer belly, gold chain, one of those thick ones, hair popping up out of his shirt. You know, all that kind of stuff, right? He wears a tank top all the time, and you're just going, gross. But the law of the kinsman was actually a selfless act of great compassion. And it would be another chapter of Ruth's amazing story. So in chapter 3, Naomi instructs Ruth, hey, go back to the threshing floor. Go to the farm of Boaz. In the middle of the night when he's sleeping, lie down at his feet. And when he wakes up, ask him to be your kinsman redeemer. Ask him to marry you. Ask him to father a child for your dead husband's name. Whoa. (laughs) Mind blown, right? Ruth follows the script to a T. She pops the question to Boaz, and he enthusiastically says yes to the dress. And yes to the mess, and yes to the stress that this is going to bring. As a matter of fact, he promises Ruth, and, and, and I'll quote him here, He says, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. 
and you thought season 21 of The Bachelor was awesome? Are you kidding me? This is awesome. Chapter 4 rolls around. We hear wedding bells in Bethlehem. It's probably the first chic barn wedding in history, and a groom named Boaz stands up before God and before all the guests, and here's what he says. Today, your witnesses that I've bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I've also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today, you are my witnesses. And you know what they did? They clinked their glasses, I'm pretty sure. And the bride and groom probably kissed. At least that's the way I think about it. And we're told that Boaz then took Ruth, she became his wife, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. They named the son Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of, drum roll please, David. Now that is a family tree. Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the foreigner, Ruth the former hopeless widow becomes the great grandma of King David, all because she said, God will be my God in her defining moment. David's name is the very last word of the entire book of Ruth. If you're a Hebrew expert, Hebrew, English subtitles, right? It's the exclamation point of the whole story. The story begins with national tragedy. It's the days of the judges, personal tragedy, death, loss, widowhood. It ends with national hope. King David is coming. Israel's greatest king is going to reign. And it's a story of personal hope and joy and grace. And, oh, there's one other footnote. You might be familiar with King David's greatest grandson, and Ruth's greatest great-great-great-great-great-grandson because his name is Jesus, the son of David. Here's the good news, friends, the gospel. Did you know that you and I have a kinsman redeemer who is greater than Boaz, far greater? He's blindsided us with grace. He left the glory of heaven, took on flesh, became one of us, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He paid the highest price. He gave his life so that we could be redeemed. He paid our unpayable debt of sin to set us free from our slavery to sin, to place us securely in God's family, to guarantee an inheritance that can never be stripped away from us. And so I urge you, Will you make Ruth's defining testimony your own testimony? God will be my God no matter what, even when I'm blindsided. Because then when life happens and you do find yourself blindsided by the most unimaginable event, divorce, infidelity, infertility, miscarriage, bankruptcy, unemployment, depression, sexual abuse, you name it, where, whatever your blind side is, you can be sure of this. Your pain-filled, tragic story is still being written. It's not over, even though it looks like it's over. 
but God will redeem your darkest story. And he'll do it for your good and for his glory. So prepare to be blindsided. Blindsided by God's amazing grace. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for blindsiding us with your grace. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That that where our sin abounds, grace abounds even more. That when our strength fades and fails, your grace is sufficient. That you invite us to approach the throne of grace boldly and find mercy and grace and help in our time of greatest need. Father, would you please continue to redeem our dark and painful stories for our eternal good and so that you will receive all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.